All right, if you're just joining us, we are going through a series called Christ in the Old Testament. Christ in the Old Testament. The first week we looked at the Genesis and the creation story, specifically the creation of Adam and Eve and the fall, and where we see the gospel and what is so, the so-called Proto-Evangelion, the first gospel. Uh, they're all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. Um, if you are here last week, Brent gave an amazing look um, that I, I was just telling some of the men I, I would have never seen with my own eyes. And uh, please, if you weren't here last week, please download that. Um, it was fantastic. Uh, this morning, what we're going to look at is a man named Abraham. A man named Abraham. And, and to begin, I want to begin this way. Um, back in the second century, there was a man named Marcion. You've probably never heard of Marcion. Uh, he was condemned as a heretic. The reason why Marcion was condemned as a heretic was because he didn't believe in the Old Testament. He felt like the God of the Old Testament was different than the God of what the New Testament writings were beginning to be put together. The New Testament at this point was still being decided on. The canon was coming together. And he actually put forward his own version of that. But what he said in it was that um, the God of the Old Testament is different. And the Old Testament should be rejected. And he was one of the first to be condemned as a heretic in this kind of forming Orthodox church, the beginning of the second century, because he rejected the Old Testament. In other words, to reject the Old Testament, to think that it's irrelevant to us, to think that the God of the Old Testament is different than the God of the New, it's heresy. It's been heresy as long as there's been a New Testament church for 2,000 years. Uh, the Old Testament is not just important for us, but it's our story. It's the story of God, the same God. The God of the New Testament is the God of the Old. Now, on the flip side, uh, I, I went to a and um, I minor. Thank you. Please don't do that. Um, <laughs> now you can if you want. Um, I minored, one of my minors was in literature, okay, English lit which would, would have made my high school English teacher just laugh hysterically because I never, <laughs> I hated it. So, and then something clicked for me when I was in college, and I just, I devoured it. And one of the classes I took was probably one of my favorites, was called the Bible as Literature. The Bible as Literature. Now, this was at a public university. I know it's A&M, right? Very conservative, but it's still a public university. And I want to show you the Bible we used. This is it right here. I still have it. This is the Bible we used. Now, if you can, I know most of y'all can't see this far, um, but you can see these right here. That's, that's Hebrew. This is a Hebrew-English Tanakh. This was our Bible, for Bible is literature, a Hebrew-English Tanakh. Now, if you read this, one, you're going to notice that you read it backwards. Genesis is here. So if you go to the end, what you will not find is the book of Matthew. In fact, you'll find the New Testament nowhere because the Bible is literature at Texas A&M back when I took it was taught by an Orthodox Jew who didn't believe that the New Testament was the Bible. And so we went through what he viewed as the Bible, Scripture, for an entire semester without seeing Christ as the goal. So as we read Isaiah 58 and Isaiah 55, and 56, and the songs of the suffering servant, Isaiah 53, 
he would say, none of this is about Jesus Christ. Not a word. So on the flip side, if you read the Old Testament without the New, you completely miss out on what is completely has been there all along. Some of you might uh, know the work of M. Night Shyamalan. He's a, a director, film director, who's kind of made a living off of these movies that you watch to the very end and then something happens and it's a huge just kind of gotcha. You know, this thing that you just could not expect and what it makes you do is it causes you to look back on the whole movie with a completely different light. And in some ways it's kind of gimmicky. Uh, so movies like The Village or Sixth Sense or Unbreakable, uh, I won't give away any of the spoilers. Uh, but the idea is it's called, it's a plot twist and a plot twist that you put at the very end. It's known as a twist ending. Something that happens at the end of a story that suddenly makes you rethink everything that has happened. Things that were there the whole time, but now you're seeing in the new light. That is what the New Testament, what the gospel of Jesus Christ does for us as we look at the old. Things that were there the whole time suddenly take on a different light. Let me show you what I mean. Let me give you one of my favorite plot twists in the Bible. It's there on your page, Galatians 3, verse 8. Galatians 3, verse 8. You could think of this almost like a plot twist, a twist ending, something that as you read it is going to completely reshape the way that you look at something that's been there all along. Galatians 3, verse 8. This is the Apostle Paul. He's writing to the church at Galatia a church that thinks you're saved through faith and your works. We'll talk more about that later. And so to correct that, he brings up a man named Abraham. He says, The Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you all the nations will be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Okay, I, I don't want you to miss this this morning. A, Paul just said that the gospel was preached beforehand to Abraham. In other words, the gospel is in Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Genesis 17. This is the Apostle Paul. This isn't just some made-up theory or hermeneutic, a way of reading it. This is the Apostle Paul saying the gospel was preached to Abraham. And what I want you to see this morning, brothers, is that completely changes the way we think about the Bible. Completely changes the way that we think about Abraham and his life, because Paul says the gospel is here. I want to show you this in three ways this morning. Three ways in Abraham's life from the book of Genesis. The first, I want to look at a gospel of promise. A gospel of promise. I want you to look at your sheet there, Genesis 12. By the way, we're going to be all over the Bible this morning some, so if you have a Bible app on your phone or you've brought a Bible with you, go ahead and get that out. That might be helpful. Uh, you can write any of these references as well on your sheet if you want to go back and look at them later. A gospel of promise. This is Genesis 12, beginning in verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house, to the land I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth 
shall be blessed. Now, if you've grown up in church, and even if you haven't grown up in church, the reality is you've probably heard of Abraham before. You at least know that Abraham has still kind of remained in our culture as an important name. Uh, you can think of Abraham Lincoln. I even uh, know somebody uh, around my age who's named Abraham, right? It's a name of dignity, of honor, of respect. All that comes back to a man, a biblical man, named Abraham. But before there was a man named Abraham, that man, his name was Abram. We'll see his name changed in just a minute. Before he was Abraham, he was a man named Abram. And who was he? Who was Abram that he deserved, that he was worth God's pursuit? What qualities did Abram possess that made him worthy of God's favor? Because if you notice, verse 1, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go to your country and kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you. He's saying, Abram, I'm coming to you. I'm speaking to you. I am God Almighty. Imagine what that would have been like. God himself is speaking to Abram and telling him to go. He's promising that there will be a land. Leave where you are. Leave your father's house and go to a land I will show you. Who is Abram? He was nobody. He was nobody. He was just a man in the middle of a land called Ur. Elsewhere in the Bible, we're told that his dad, his father, this father's house that he's supposed to leave, his father was a polytheist. He was raised in a pagan household. We don't know this for certain, but it's likely that Abram didn't know the God of the Bible at all. Wasn't a believer in Yahweh, raised in a pagan household, a polytheistic household, and yet God comes to him. Why? Not because of who Abram is, not because of any qualities or characteristics that he possesses, but because of who God is and the qualities that God possesses. God is a God who pursues us. He's a God of promise. A God who makes promises to us not because we are worthy, not because there is anything uh, special about us, but because of who He is. Because out of His exceeding and abundant love, He comes to make promises to us. What did He promise to Abram? Look at verse 2. He says, I'm going to make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. And you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This is the beginnings of God's covenant with Abram. It's known as the Abrahamic covenant. Now, what's a covenant? Well, covenant is just a promise. A promise made in blood. I want to read this to you. This is uh, by far the best book on the covenants of the Bible. If you ever want to make a, a study, a side study, it's a book called Christ the Covenants by O. Palmer Robertson. It's the book that converted me to covenant theology, if you will. Let me just read his definition of covenant. He says, a covenant is a bond in blood sovereignly administered. Okay, what does that mean? All right, a covenant is a bond in blood, a bond. It's a promise, but not just any kind of promise. It's like a a promise that binds you together. 
not contractually like a business deal, but relationally binds you together. It's the kind of promise that has vows attached to it. Those of you this morning who are married, you have made a covenant before. You made vows before God and to your wife, relationally joining you together. But he doesn't just say it's any kind of bond. He says it's a bond in blood. Now part of this, bond in blood, means it's a, it's a bond unto death. So think about, again, a marriage vow till death do us part. It's a bond in blood. We see this kind of blood covenant or a blood pact all throughout the Hebrew Scriptures. So think about uh, Moses, the sacrificial system, covenants made by God to his people were a bond in blood. Blood would be shed. Now that might seem archaic and barbaric to us today, but I want to show you something. I have more things for, for show and tell. All right, can everybody see this? Blood packs are actually still practiced today. Not in our culture, certainly not in the West, certainly not in the 21st century West, but if you go to Africa today, you will still see blood pacts being practiced. A promise between two parties in blood. This is the device they use. It has a little cup here. So you would make a promise between two parties. Those two parties would cut their hand, would drip the blood into the cup. Now, what do you think this is for? Yeah. You go just like this, and the mixed blood drips down right here, and you drink it. And you think, that's archaic. In many ways, it is. That's barbaric. Well, in some ways, it is to us, but it is exactly the kind of covenants that you see in the ancient Near East when the Bible is being written. Now, why do it that way? Would you say that uh, making a promise like this has a little bit more meaning to it? <laughs> you might think twice about breaking your promise. <laughs> if it's a promise unto death, a promise that you actually shed blood over, that's the kind of covenant that God makes with his people. And we see this throughout the scriptures. It's the kind of promise that he's making to Abraham. A covenant in blood. But again, Palmer Robertson, he doesn't just end there. A bond in blood sovereignly administered. What does that sovereign mean? It's administered. It's overseen by a sovereign, a king. Who is that king? That king is God himself. A king who is making a covenant with his people, his subjects. And he's saying, this is what I'm going to promise to you, to death, and this is what I'm asking you to promise to me. Out of his grace, out of his abundance, out of his love, God is making this promise, this covenant, to Abram. Not because of who he is, but because of who God is. Second, we see that this is a gospel of faith. Not just a gospel of promise, but a gospel of faith. Look at Genesis 15. It's there on your page. It says, after these things, what things? Well, God coming to Abram out of nowhere and making a covenant, a promise. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward will be very great. But Abram said, O oh Lord God, what would you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house 
as Eliezer of Damascus. Abram said, Behold, you've given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. Now, what's happening here? What's happening here? Abram is married, and he has a wife. His wife's name is Sarah. They are very old. Uh, They're at least 75. We're told that earlier uh, in this story. Uh, Later in Genesis 17, we'll see that Abram's 99. So somewhere in there, he's old. His wife is old. They don't have children. They don't have grandchildren. They don't have a family. Why? No offspring. Why? Because Sarah's barren. They've been unable to have kids. If you look back at Genesis 12 and see what God is promising to Abram, what is he saying? Abram, you're going to have so many kids that I'm going to make an entire nation out of you. Your offspring is going to be so prolific that I'm going to birth an entire country out of you. That's my promise. Meanwhile, Abram is looking at his life. He's looking at his circumstance. He's looking at his wife. And what do you think he's thinking? Where are you, God? What are you doing? You've made this promise to me, and I'm seeing none of it. I hear what you're saying, but I don't see it with my eyes. And because I don't see it with my eyes, I don't believe you. Just like any of us. Brothers, what I want you to begin to wrestle with this morning is that God has come out of nowhere into your life. He's pursuing you. Not because of who you are. Not because you particularly deserve it. You have these character qualities that make you worthy of His pursuit, but because of who He is. And He has made a promise to you. A promise that He has kept. And a promise that He will keep. But just like Abram and just like Sarah, we look at our lives, we look at our circumstances, and we doubt His promises. Our initial response, 100% of the time, to God's promise to us is doubt. We don't believe why. Think back all the way to the fall, just a couple weeks ago. Satan coming to Adam and Eve, and what does he say? Did God really say? It's the foundation of every sin. It's the foundation of the fall. It's we don't trust God and that He is going to do what He says He's going to do. Abram did not trust God. He didn't trust God. Did God really say? Did He really say that He was going to give me an entire nation? The blessing of children and their children and their children, offsprings for generations. Because I'm looking at my life, I'm looking at my wife, and it's not happening. So what does He do? He does what we do. He takes matters into his own hands. He says, I'm going to do it on my own. I'm going to make Eleazar. I'm going to make Eleazar the heir of my house. Why? He looks at the Lord, verse 3, you've given me no offspring. So how does God respond to Abram? How does God respond to Abram's doubt? The same way that he responds to ours. Notice what God says in response Verse 4, Behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man will not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. He brought him outside and said, Look towards heaven and number the stars. If you're able to number them, then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. 
God's response to Abraham's doubt is not condemnation. It's not to revoke his covenant promise. It's not to say, oh, I've, I've chosen the wrong guy. Let me go get somebody else who's actually going to believe me. In the same way with us, he comes to Abram with his grace, with his mercy. And he just reinforces his promise. He says, Abram, look up. Look at the stars. If you could even count them, that's how many offspring you're going to have. Your very own son, Abram, will be your heir. He will be yours. And I am going to do it. At first, Abraham responds with doubt. God reiterates his promise in the same way he does with us over and over and over again. His mercies are new every morning, brothers. He's constantly reminding us that he is a promise-keeping God. And though we respond with doubt, he responds with grace. And this is Abram's second response. I want you to look with me. Verse 6. Just as Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. One of the most important aspects of the Reformation what we really carry today as Protestants is the doctrine that we are saved through faith alone and not by works. In many ways, because of what was going on in the Catholic Church at the time, for Luther, it was almost like a new discovery. Something that he had never known before and yet was always there. For him, it was reading the book of Galatians. As Luther poured over the book of Galatians, suddenly he began to see with fresh eyes that we are saved through faith and not by works. There is nothing that you can do to earn salvation. The response that God has asked in response to his promises is not our work and our good deeds. It's not to make ourselves worthy and to clean ourselves up and to be perfect because we can't. The response that God has asked for is faith. Galatians is so clear in this. As Paul is writing to Galatian church, a church that believed that you were saved through faith and your works. And I think that's what makes this so difficult for us this morning to really think about where we stand. Where you this morning come into a place like this is if you've been walking with Jesus for your whole life, if Christianity is new to you, or if you are kind of on the fringe, just thinking about what, what, what would it mean for me to be a Christian? is because we think, well, very rarely, although it does exist, but especially in a Christian subculture like ours, will you meet somebody who says, no, I'm completely saved by my works. I really think that I can earn it. What more often you see is what was happening in the Galatian church. I'm saved by faith, yes, I believe in Jesus, but I also believe I'm saved by my works. It's both. It's a Jesus plus kind of theology. I need to believe in Jesus, but I also need to be good. And that's what the Galatian church believed. And Paul wrote the book of Galatians to correct that. To say you are adding to the gospel, and when you add to the gospel, it's no longer the gospel. So as he's writing the book of Galatians, this is what he says. He says, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? 
It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, that you are now perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and work miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? So Paul is doing what Paul does best. He's asking rhetorical question after rhetorical question, completely decimating their worldview, helping them see that you are not saved through faith and your works, but it's faith alone. It's always been this way. And then this is what he does. He goes back to his source. Where does Paul get this kind of thinking? I mean, who invented this doctrine? We know it's not Luther. Luther's looking at Paul. So Luther didn't invent salvation through faith alone. To say that that's just a Reformation doctrine is wrong. Because it's a Pauline doctrine. And you look at Paul and his writing, Galatians and Romans, you see all over the place, salvation through faith alone, not by works. But where did Paul get it? Here's where Paul got it. Galatians 3, chapter uh, chapter 3, verse 6. Just as Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Luther didn't invent salvation through faith alone. Paul didn't even invent salvation through faith alone. It begins in the book of Genesis. Brothers, this is what I want you to see. The gospel was preached beforehand to Abraham. Where is it? Abraham was saved through faith alone and not by works. He believed the Lord and it was counted to him as righteousness. All the time people will ask me, how is an Old Testament patriarch saved? Abraham and Moses, the heroes of the Bible, they didn't know Jesus Christ. How are they saved? The same way you and I are. Faith and the promise of God and not by works. We believe in faith and God's promise that has been fulfilled, fulfilled in Jesus Christ. They believed in faith and a promise that was not yet to be fulfilled, but they believed nonetheless. One of the things I want you to wrestle with this this morning at your tables is I want you to notice something very important, and then we'll end with the third point, that the gospel is the gospel of Christ. But notice it says, Abram believed God. It doesn't say Abram believed in God. It says Abram believed God. There's a huge difference. It's one thing to believe that there is a God. That's one kind of faith. Perhaps you could even call it intellectual assent. You acknowledge there's a God. But that's not the kind of faith that the Bible talks about as faith that saves. It's not enough that you would just believe that there is a God or even believe that there was a man, Jesus Christ. That's historic. Faith, saving faith, is not just believing in a God, it's believing God. In other words, it's trusting in His promise. It's saying that God really did say, and He said to the point of death, even death on a cross. He's a promise-keeping God. The question is this morning, do you believe Him? Have you trusted in his promise? Have you trusted in the one, Jesus Christ, who has fulfilled those promises for you and for me? That's where we're going to end this morning. This is a gospel of Christ. Genesis 15 goes on. It's not there in your sheet. 
after Abraham believes the Lord, Genesis 15, 9, God says to Abram, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove and a young pigeon. And he brought all of these and cut them in half and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. When the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. And as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, a dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Okay, what's happening here? It's the beginning of a blood covenant. It's the preparations of a blood pact. A pact, a covenant between Abram and God. They're taking these animals and they're cutting them in half and they're setting them on either side. Why? book of Jeremiah gives us a clue. This is Jeremiah 34, 18. Don't turn there. Just listen. You can write this down and look it up later. The men who transgressed my covenant and did not keep the turns of the covenant that they made before me, I will make them like the calf that they cut in two and pass between its parts. When you formed a blood covenant in this way and you cut a calf in half and you pass between the two parts, you were saying, may it be done to me as it's been done to this calf, if this covenant is broken. That's the, the severity, the weight of a blood covenant. I'm going to cut an animal in half and I'm going to pass in between it. And when I do, I'm symbolizing that if this covenant is broken, may this be done to me till death do us part. I want you to notice something about Genesis 15. Right after Abraham prepares the parts of this blood pact, what does it say? Verse 12, the sun was going down, and a deep sleep fell upon Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. He fell asleep. And then in just a few sentences later, verse 17 when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces. A pot and a fire torch. A pillar of fire and smoke, right? Led the people of Israel out of Egypt. It's a picture of God Himself. Where was Abram when this pact was to be made? He was asleep. He didn't pass through the two pieces. It was only God who did. May it be done to me if the covenant is broken. As we end this morning, what I want you to see is Jesus Christ is the one who has kept this covenant for you and for me. Abram didn't pass through the two pieces. God did. And God has recognized that the covenant is broken. Not because he broke it, because we have. We break it every single day. We fail to trust in God's promise, fulfilled in Jesus Christ, and we break His covenant every single day. And yet for you and for, you, for me, God has passed through the two pieces. And He has said, may it be done unto me. And so He sent His only Son, Jesus Christ, to die and to rise again, to keep the covenant to say that I will be your God and you will be my people. The last little section on your sheet there is from Genesis 17. 
Paul says the gospel was preached beforehand to Abram. As we close, I want to show you just a few examples of this. I want to challenge you at your tables to do this together. Where do you see the gospel? Paul says the gospel is here. Where is it? Where is the gospel in Genesis 17? Where do you see Jesus Christ fulfilling all of this for you and for me? Genesis 17, verse 1. When Abram was 99, the Lord appeared to Abram and said, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and multiply you greatly. Abram fell on his face and God said, Behold, my covenant is with you. You shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer will your name be Abram. Your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. It's, got, it's Abram's new covenant name, Abraham. It just means father of a multitude. A multitude. Nations, God says. One day we're told in the book of Revelation that every tribe, every tongue, every nation will bow before Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. The gospel for every tribe and every tongue and every nation is here in Genesis. Even as God is forming a new nation, Israel, He's doing so to bless the whole world, every nation, the Gentiles. That's you and that's me. Verse 6, He says, I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will make you into nations and kings will come from you. If you were to look at the very first book of the New Testament, the book of Matthew, the Gospel, Matthew 1, verse 1 says this, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Okay? Perhaps you've read that before, or perhaps if you're like me, you've skipped over it over and over again because it's just a bunch of bagats, and you're like, I really don't know what this has to do with me. Why would Matthew begin his gospel? Why would the New Testament begin with the genealogy of Jesus Christ? Where do you think Matthew begins? What does he trace Christ's lineage all the way back to? It's not Adam. It's Abraham. Why? Because Abraham kings are going to come from you. Kings are going to come from you. A king named David, and then David's greater son, Jesus Christ. Christ is the fulfillment of a promise given to Abraham in Genesis. Verse 7, he says, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. I will give to you in the land of your offspring after you, the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. An everlasting possession of land, the promised land. Have you ever sung, I'm bound for the promised land? All those who have professed their faith in Jesus Christ and trusted in His promise of salvation, freely offered to, to you and to me, that He died and He rose again for you. All those who believe in Him and trust in His name will be saved forever. And you have an inheritance that was promised to you all the way in the book of Genesis. The land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. Heaven itself was promised. Heaven in Genesis. The gospel is here. It was preached beforehand to Abraham and now it's being preached to you and to me. What do you believe this morning? Do you trust in God's 
covenant promise for you? Have you believed that God really has said? He said, it is finished. And he died on the cross. Let me pray and send you to your table. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your covenant promises. We thank you for the blessings that are now ours in Christ Jesus. We pray, Lord, that you would open our eyes, illuminate our hearts to see Christ here in the scriptures of the Old Testament. Father, our apostle Paul tells us that the gospel was preached beforehand. Help us to see the gospel here. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.